our text this morning is verses 19 to 22 from that chapter. So if you'd have the Bible open in front of you, that would be helpful. You've got the whole context now ringing in your ears, but we're going to have a close look at Pilate's sign in verses 19 to 22. Some of you may have been to Rome. I've never been to Rome, but I'm told that there in the Basilica of Santa Croce, there is a chapel. And in the chapel, you can find several relics that millions of pilgrims come each year to see. Among those relics, you've got some nails from the true cross. You've got some pieces of wood from the cross. You've got two thorns from the crown of thorns. And you have a piece of wood with some writing on it, which is meant to be the very inscription, which we've just read about, placed over Jesus' head on the cross. The inscription that Pilate made, Pilate's sign. Now, of course, this has been looked into, it's been studied, and... We have no reason to believe these are originals, and yet they are fascinating to millions of people each year who flock there. What is it that they're looking for? Why would so many flock to Rome to catch a glimpse of what's etched onto this piece of wood behind some glass embedded in a golden relic? What are they looking for? What are they hoping for? That piece of wood is not the actual sign that hung above Jesus' head on the cross that we read about here in John 19. But even if it were, even if it were, it would do us no good, would it? It would be of no use to us to go and to see, even if we could open the glass and touch that piece of wood, that sign would do us no good. It's not the sign that matters. It's what that sign points to that matters. And of course, the sign placed above Jesus points us to Jesus. And it points us to the fact that Jesus is a crucified king. Pilate's sign points us to Jesus, our crucified king. And that's the very simple point of our sermon this morning. It's a simple point, but it raises a lot of interesting questions for us, I think. And the questions, the questions are questions that we need to hear before we take a closer look at the text, because they matter deeply to each of us here this morning. This text is holding out this question to you. It's asking you this morning, is Jesus your king? Have you looked to this crucified king on the cross for salvation from your sin. And if he is your king, if you have looked to to this Jesus, if you have gone to him by faith, if he's your king, then this text asks you, are you living, are you living with your gaze fixed upon this king who alone can give you life? Who alone can give you the forgiveness of sins that you need? Are you growing in humble, in grateful loyalty to this crucified king? These are the questions this text is asking of us this morning. So I start with these questions to each of you this morning. Who is, who is Jesus for you? Is Jesus a kind of curiosity as he is for those who go to see those relics in Rome? Is, is Jesus a historical figure that you know about, you've heard about? A great ethical and moral example, a great teacher 
a great religious figure? Is that who Jesus is for you? Or is Jesus more than that to you? Do you know him? Do you know him personally? Do you cling to that crucified king on the cross? Is Jesus yours? And are you his this morning? I'll have your Bible open, if you would, to John chapter 19. Have a look at verse 19. Verse 19 tells us that Pilate's sign was an inscription. And some of you might think inscription. And you look, we've got inscriptions on the walls of this church, don't we? Inscriptions are everywhere in London. Every museum, every street corner. And usually inscriptions are etched in stone. But in the ancient world, as today, that wasn't the only way. You could have graffiti painted on walls. So some of you may have been to Pompeii and seen those painted inscriptions. Or you could have ephemeral uh, inscriptions that didn't last, that we can't dig up archaeologically because they were there and then gone. Like this inscription, painted probably with white paint on a piece of wood and nailed there above Jesus' head on the cross. This is the inscription. This is Pilate's sign. And the way we're told by ancient historians that we have to read ancient inscriptions is this. You never just look at what the words say. You look at the entire monument with which they are associated. You look at the context of the inscription. And that's what we have to do this morning to understand not just what it says. What it says is plain, isn't it, there in verse 19? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We see that. We understand what it says. But we want to know what it means. And we've got to see it in context in order to understand what it means. So first we'll look at it in context of this unfolding narrative here in chapter 19. And then in the context of John's gospel generally. Before we try to apply it to our own context and our own lives. First of all, we see when we look in context that this sign, this inscription, Pilate's sign is a sign that mocks. Did you, did you feel that as we read the narrative, as we listened to chapter 19? This is a sign that is full of mockery. Boys and girls, you've got some of you uh, a sheet uh, with some, some things on it to help you as you listen to the sermon. And you'll notice that on your sheet, you've got the outline of a wooden sign. And as you listen, you can write in there what it says in verse 19. What does this inscription say? But even more than that, I want you to listen to this question. This is for the boys and girls and for the rest of us. I want to make sure you understand what mockery means. When I say this is a sign that mocks, what does it mean to mock? I think you know this, and you may have even experienced this. To mock means to make fun of, doesn't it? It means to make fun of someone in a mean-spirited way, and often to do that in front of other people. It's public mockery and ridicule that we're talking about here. Maybe you can imagine uh, a scenario with me. Some of you like to play football. I'm aware of that. And maybe you've been on the football pitch and suddenly you realize it's just you and open grass and the keeper and the goal. And all you got to do is get it in the net. And you're running down with all your might. And you take your shot and the keeper goes this way. You try to shoot for that corner but you put a little bit too much into it and it sails wide of the mark. Now just imagine for a moment, if at that very moment, the other team, your own team, all the parents and everyone around you begins to make fun of you, to mock you. And they do it this way. They, they begin to say, great goal, Harry Kane, great goal, Harry Kane. What are they doing? 
They're mocking you. They're mocking you by comparing you to someone great to emphasize how bad you just were. That you don't match up to the title that they are using to mock you. Do you understand what it means to mock? This sign that Pilate writes is a sign that mocks Jesus. Because what does it say? It says that Jesus is a king. But what is Jesus doing? He is nailed helplessly to a cross. That is not where a king belongs. This is utter ridicule and mockery summed up for us in Pilate's sign. And we see that driven home again and again in the narrative around our text. Beginning in chapter 18, you might want to flip back there. Verse 33, Pilate first asks Jesus as he encounters him, Are you the king of the Jews? Then again in 1837, he says, So you are a king. Do you hear the emphasis of king right through the narrative? Then Jesus replies, Well, you say that I am a king. Verse 39 of chapter 18, Pilate turns back to the Jewish leaders and he asks, this time we can hear his sneer. We can hear the ridicule that's coming out in his tone of voice. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Do you hear the mockery that's building? Jesus is being titled a king, but his situation shows that he's not the kind of king we would expect in worldly terms. The mockery continues in chapter 19. Look at verses 1 to 3. The soldiers who are torturing Jesus, what do they do? They dress him with a crown of thorns pressed into his head. They put a purple robe around his shoulders. Then what do they do? Verse 3 says they take turns stepping forward one by one to Jesus. And in mock worship, they say, hail, king of the Jews. And then they hit him in the face. This is mockery, public humiliation. Verse 19, uh, verse 14 rather of chapter 19. Pilate brings this beaten up, bloodied Jesus back out in front of the crowd. And he shouts, behold, your king. You can hear again the tone of voice. And then in verse 15, Pilate asks him one last time. Shall I crucify your king? To which the chief priests reply, We have no king but Caesar. Do you see what that sign cross does? It points us to Jesus in a mocking, humiliating way. It ridicules Jesus. It doesn't just drip with fresh white paint. It drips with ridicule. And it invites everyone who passes by this public place, very near to Jerusalem, to laugh, to mock To scorn Jesus because it implies that he is something that he is not or does not appear to be. It's like that shout from the football crowd. Great goal, Harry Kane, when you've just blown the shot. Jesus on the cross, the king of the Jews. That's the mockery. But the mockery doesn't stop there. We need to consider what crucifixion was, not because we want to understand somehow or enter into somehow the physical pain that Jesus underwent on the cross. That is not what the Gospels are interested in. It's not the physical pain. It's it's not the it's not the bloodiness of the scene that they that they focus on. It's instead the shame, the humiliation, the mockery. 
But there are ways that John and his original readers of this gospel would have known about crucifixion that is, is, is lost to us because we are so far distant from the Roman world. And we need to bridge that gap this morning in order to understand a bit more the shame and humiliation that our Savior bore on that cross. Because this is the point the Bible wants to make. You have to understand that for the Romans and those that they ruled, the word cross, crux in Latin, was a vulgar swear word. It was a, it was a taunt that you used when you wanted to horrify your friend or say something completely obscene. I can't even give you a modern equivalent in good, in good conscience from the pulpit this morning. I can't do it. That's, that's what a filthy, dirty word, cross, was to Greek and Roman writers. You didn't even write about it without using a circumlocution. You talked about it in a nicer kind of way. And so it was called things like the arbor in felix, the unlucky or cursed tree. And it was cursed. In fact, it was more cursed than even the Romans knew. Because we know from God's word in the Old Testament that the one who hangs on a wooden tree on a cross is not just cursed and mocked by men and women. He is cursed by God, and he's under the judgment and the wrath of God Almighty. The cross is the place of shame and cursing. And yet, John doesn't shy away. and neither does Jesus. John is very matter-of-fact, isn't he, in his description. And Jesus willingly willingly goes and walks through the gospel, knowing that the cross lies before him. He doesn't resist. He doesn't try to defend himself before Pilate. He doesn't fight back with words or with fists against those soldiers. He gives himself over to the cross willingly. He embraces its curse and its shame and its humiliation. And even the way, even the way the crucified person was displayed drove home that shame, didn't it? Because, forget forget it, there was no loincloth. The crucified person is naked and exposed on the cross. And you may have, you may have heard descriptions of how this worked, that maybe, maybe their feet are resting on a, on a post, the knees swiveled to the side in a last vestige of modesty. But we know from archaeology now, that's probably not the case. We know from bones, heel bones that have been found, pierced with nails just outside of Jerusalem and Palestine, that probably those legs were splayed wide open. Utter shame, utter exposure, utter humiliation for the one hanging on the cross. That's the mockery to which Jesus is subjected here. And which he willingly bears. Why? That's the question, isn't it? Why would Jesus allow himself to be nailed to that cross in this way? And this is where I want so urgently, so urgently to apply this to each and every one of us in this room this morning. But before I do that, I've got to show you some other things from the text. I have to show you why, why it is that Jesus would endure this mockery. Why the Son of God himself would allow himself to die on a Roman cross. And why it was necessary that he would do so. Why did Jesus have to die in this way? Why did Jesus embrace the cross as his throne? 
the very site where he displayed his kingly glory. How is this possible? It's a sign that mocks Pilate's sign. But the second thing we want to understand is that it is a sign that is true. It's a sign that's true. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, it's truer than Pilate knew. It is truer than those chief priests knew. It's absolutely true. And so the children have on your sheet two different crowns, don't you? A crown of thorns, which is what everyone saw, but really the underlying reality is that this, this was a true crown of glory that Jesus took as he ascended that cross. Several years ago, let me try and help us understand that. Several years ago, Google trialed something. Maybe you heard about this. It's still around, but it didn't really take off in the way they'd hoped. Did you hear about Google Glass? Those glasses that were meant to be uh, wired in, Wi-Fi'd in to the, to the internet connection, and so that you could see through the lens of the glass what they called enhanced or augmented reality. The idea was that you look at something and you don't just see what's there, but that Google helps you by knowing where you are with GPS location and hangs a little kind of bubble above what you're looking at to tell you what it is that you're seeing. So you can see through or behind the reality that's visible normally to your eyes to see the true identity of what it is that you're looking at. So just imagine for a minute, you're coming to church, you come up the tube from St. Paul's, you step out of the tube station, you look back over your shoulder, and you see what? You see the dome of St. Paul's. Well, if you've got your Google glasses on, immediately you've got a little box, a little bubble hanging over the dome that tells you that in 1669, this was designed by none other than Sir Christopher Wren, who after the great fire of London destroyed the structure there, was commissioned to design and to build it. Google Glass tells you the reality, the history, the true identity behind what it is you're looking at. But you check your watch. Actually, you don't have to check your watch, do you? Because the time flitters across your glasses and your lenses tells you two minutes till the service starts. So you start walking up the street towards the church. And as you're coming, even before you get to the gate on this side, another little bubble appears and tells you the Wesleys. John Wesley was associated with this church. You, you know it even before you see the plaque out here. And then you come up into Postman's Park. You come up those steps. There's a gentleman in dark glasses sitting on one of the benches. And you're about to walk by. Suddenly a bubble there bursts. Oh, this is an MI5 agent sitting there because Google Glass tells you not just what you're seeing, but the true reality of who it is there. And then you're about to turn in and you see, you see a woman across the way in the park with a buggy and some children. And again, the bubble pops out. This, this is the royal nanny. This, this is Will and Kate's, uh, that's our children being looked at. But no time because it's late now. The service has already started and you come to the building and hopefully you take those off. So you're not distracted as you take your seat. You get the idea of what Google Glass was intended to do. Not just show you the surface reality, but the reality behind the surface. That too is what Pilate's sign does for us this morning. If we put it into, into the whole context of John's gospel. We don't put on Google Glasses. We put on John's gospel glasses. And it helps us to see that when the sign says Jesus is the king, it's actually true. This is the reality behind the crucified man on the cross. 
I hope you can see this point here. Who is this mocked man? He's not just your average man. He's not just a criminal. He's not just someone with good ideas and and good ethical teaching. And it all went wrong. And tragically, he finds himself nailed to a cross. This is the very son of God who embraces that cross as his throne so that he can save sinners. That's what John's gospel glasses help us to see. Let me give you a very brief overview to help you see this more clearly, perhaps. John chapter 1. You might want to keep a finger in John 19, and you could flick back to John 1. You can also just listen if you prefer. In John chapter 1, how does it all begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made were made through him. Who is Jesus? John's gospel doesn't start off with saying, in the beginning was Jesus, it identifies Jesus with the the word of God, with God himself. He was there. He was there in Genesis 1 as all things were spoken into being. That's who Jesus is, the very divine word. And it goes on. It tells us that that word in verse 14 of chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only Son of the Father. Who is Jesus? With our gospel glasses on, we know he's, he is the eternal Word of God who has taken on human flesh, stepped into time in a real body in order that God himself might live among us. John chapter 1. John chapter 2. Who is Jesus? Jesus goes to a wedding, doesn't he? And he goes to a wedding where at the after party, at the reception, they run out of wine. And his mother comes to him, because she knows who he is, and says, help them. And he helps them. And this word of God creates, creates wine out of water. Miraculously. So that they might celebrate at that wedding. This is who Jesus is. He's got miraculous divine power in John's gospel. What about John chapter 4? In John chapter 4, Jesus, while his disciples are away getting some supplies, meets that woman at the well. It's hot. It's the middle of the day. And he comes there, and he's thirsty, and he has a conversation with her. And in that conversation, he tells her, I in the living water. I am the water of life. If you drink what I can give you, you will never be thirsty again. And I'm not talking about the thirst you feel on the back of your tongue. I'm talking about the thirst you feel in the pit of your soul. That thirst will be quenched, Jesus says. And this woman goes away and she goes back and tells her friends in town, what? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. He looked right through me and he knew me. And yet he offered living water, spiritual life to me. That's who Jesus is when we have our John's gospel glasses on. We could go on. Just one, just one more. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, dies. One of his great friends dies. And Jesus isn't there when he dies. And by the time Jesus gets there, he's been in the tomb for three days. And Jesus weeps. And Lazarus' sisters weep. And they bring Jesus to the tomb. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stands there, we're told, in John 11. And he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And it works. It happens. The dead man is resurrected. He's given new life. This one who says he has the power to work life, to give spiritual life, who says that he is the living water, he speaks and the dead man walks out of a tomb. That's who Jesus is with our John's gospel glasses on. So keep those glasses on and come back to John chapter 19 and look at the cross again. And look at the crucified man, beaten and bruised and mocked and humiliated in shame, hanging upon the cross. Who is this Jesus? Pilate's sign is true. Couldn't be more true. This is the king. This is the very son of God offering himself on a Roman cross. Why would he do that? It's because... It's because he had to be enthroned in this way. He had to be lifted up. John's gospel again helps us to see this in chapter 12. Jesus had entered Jerusalem and the the crowds had shouted, Hail! Hail! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the King of Israel. They thought he was coming as, as the foretold prophesied Davidic king from the Old Testament. And they were right but it didn't happen as they thought it would happen. Earlier in chapter 6, the same thing. Jesus Jesus gives bread to over 5,000 people sitting on the grassy hillside. And they want to crown they want to take him and crown him as king, it says in chapter 6. But Jesus slips away. I'm not that kind of king. And even at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 51, Nathaniel, one of those first disciples to see Jesus says Behold, you're the king of Israel. He had been recognized, but he wasn't the kind of king they were expecting. He wasn't the political king riding in to set them free from Roman oppression, to take up an earthly crown, to quell evil then and there with physical, political power. That's not the kind of king Jesus was. He was a king of an even greater kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of resurrection power and life. And this was how he chose to be enthroned on a Roman cross. But we still haven't got to the heart of why. John chapter 3 is our best clue at working this out. John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, just as the serpent, and here he's talking about a story from the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21, when the people were bitten by snakes because of their sin and they were poisonous, They were venomous and they're dying. And there the Lord tells Moses, make a bronze serpent, hold it up on a pole. And anyone who wants to be saved, all they do is look at that. And Jesus says in John 3, 14 and 15, just as that serpent was lifted up on a pole in the desert, so too will the son of man be lifted up so that everyone who looks on him and believes in him can be saved. And you know, you might not have known that was John 3, 14 and 15, but I'm guessing you know what John 3, 16, which comes next, says. Why will that be the case? Listen, please. Why was it the case that Jesus had to be lifted up on a cross so that all people could look at him and believe and be saved? Why? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, out of love for sinners, out of love for you and for me, God sends Jesus and Jesus willingly goes to be crucified and enthroned on a cross. 
That's where he takes up his throne because of love for sinners. And so now we're finally in a place where we need to apply this to ourselves. Now, please listen to me, especially if you are not a Christian in here this morning, especially. And what I mean by that is someone who has not repented of their sin, turned away from your sin with a deep sorrow and a deep frustration and acknowledgement that you cannot change yourself. And you turn from that and you turn to Jesus in faith that he can, that he can do it. And he's the only one who can do it. And you bow your knee to him as king and you profess that faith before believers publicly. That's what I mean. If you have not done that, if you're not a Christian here this morning, please listen to what I have to say here. Pilate's sign for you this morning points you to Jesus as a crucified king. Jesus, who was the divine word, the very son of God, and that he was on that cross because of sin. Do you see what that implies? That implies that sin, sin is this serious. Sin is no light thing. Sin is not something that we say, oh, I wish I, I wish I wouldn't do that. I wish I could shrug that off. Sin is so serious that it sends the Son of God to the cross to pay the penalty that it deserves. Sin is heinous. Sin is treason against the true king, the God who made you. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to realize the weight of that sin, which is sin that you still bear. But you don't have to. You don't have to bear that sin. Because if you come to the cross of Jesus and you bend the knee to Jesus and you turn from that and you offer that sin to Jesus and say, I want to be done with this. I want to be rid of this. Take it from me. He will do that at the cross. And he there at the cross bears your sin in your place. And you are free. You're free. It rolls off your shoulders and it goes to Jesus. And now you're free. And you rise as a son or a daughter of the king, set free from your sin. You no longer are liable for the judgment that sin deserves. Someday, one day, every knee, we're told, will bow to Jesus as the true king. On the last day when he returns, when he comes this time in visible glory to everyone, not hiding one bit of his glory, every knee will bow. But if you wait until that day to bow the knee to Jesus, then you bow under duress. You are forced to bow and you are forced to bear the judgment of your own sin. But if you come to Jesus now, then he bears sin for you in your place and you are set free. Come to him this morning. If that, if that is you come to the cross over which the sign hangs that says Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews and make him your king this morning. If you are already a Christian in here, as many of you are, and you have professed faith and you love the Lord Jesus and you want to grow to love him more, this is what the text says to you this morning. Pilate sign says to you as well, look at this Jesus. Look at this Jesus, your crucified king. Turn again to him. Whatever has happened in this last week, whatever happened last night, whatever happened this morning, Come to him now. Come to him again. And know that he bears your sin and judgment. Lay that down again at the foot of the cross. 
Look up to him and look to the crucified king who loves you, who loves you so deeply that he went to that cross for you. Look up to your king and see there full forgiveness of all your sin, past, present, and future. Look to that king and have those words from John 19.30 ringing in your ears. It is finished. Look to that king. And maybe this morning you need to pledge again your loyalty to the king who was crucified for your sake. Maybe you need again to realize you are not your own king. You cannot be your own king or queen or lord or master. You do not direct your own life. And there may be some things coming up in your week where you know that you need to bend the knee once again to King Jesus and let him direct you and submit yourself to his will and to his law. Look up to your king this week when you are tempted. Oh, Christian, brother or sister, when you are tempted with sin, what do you do? So many of us, we resist feebly for a moment, don't we? And then we cave in and we do the same things again. What if instead, in that moment of temptation, you look to your crucified king on the cross and you bring that temptation to the foot of the cross and you say, Lord, help me. Help me, King Jesus. Help me now. Give me your life. Give me your spirit to resist this temptation. I don't want to sin and be disloyal to you, but I know I'm going to if I'm left to my own strength. Help me. What if that, what if that is what we did in the coming week when we're faced with temptation? We looked instead to Pilate's sign and the one who hangs below that sign. Let me close very briefly. We've seen that this is a sign that mocks. It's a sign that is also true. And finally, it's a sign for everyone. Do you see there in our text from verse 20 onwards, what's written? What's written? The words are Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, written in three languages, isn't it? Aramaic and Latin and Greek. Why? Why in three languages? Well, Pilate, Pilate has taken advertising 101. He, he knows, he knows, doesn't he, how to get a message across that this is a public place, lots of foot traffic coming by, and he's mocking both Jesus and those who are accusing him. And further, he's sending a warning to all who pass by. It is a legible sign in all three of the primary languages of that time and that era. It's clear to everyone. And yet what Pilate writes in mockery, the Lord God, through Pilate, writes in truth and thereby welcomes welcomes people of every language and every tribe and every tongue to come to the foot of the cross. You can go into any museum in the city, can't you? And what do you see at the welcome desk? Welcome. Willkommen. Bienvenue. Bienvenidos, right? It goes on and on and on. And children, you have this on the back of your sheet. You have there just a selection of some dozen languages that as you look around, if you take a look around this room this morning, People from all kinds of linguistic and cultural backgrounds that sit in this room. That is a beautiful thing. Not because it's beautiful in the world's terms of bringing people together, but because of what God has done through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The sign says in a language that is visible and legible to every single man, woman, and child through time and space, come to the cross, come to the king who is crucified for you and be part of his kingdom and part of his church. It's a sign that mocks. It's a sign that's true. And it's a sign for everyone. So won't you come this morning for the first time or come again to the foot of the cross and find there your Savior who loves you and who has paid it all for your sins and who says, it is finished. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you that in it you are speaking to us. And, O Lord, we offer you our hearts and our lives even now. And we pray that these would not be words that merely wash over us, but that you would grip us by your word and by your spirit, that you would change us, that you would send us forth from this place as new men, new women, loyal and devoted to Jesus, our crucified King. O Lord, humble us in our pride. We cast ourselves down before you at the foot of the cross of our Lord Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.